I'm Pastor Philip Jackson, and this is the Married Now What podcast. Our goal is to provide young couples with the resources they need to build their lives on the truth of God's Word. We are so glad that you're here. Let's get to the lesson. Whose voice can come in? We're going to start with a little bit of a review. So we've done we've done several different lessons about this, and we started off with the doctrine of God. We worked to the Holy Spirit, doctrine of the Son. Talked about humanity last week. Um, so help me. So these these two boxes on the board they were they represent one is God, the other is man. Okay. So help me remember what are the attributes of God. Remember when we read the Bible, the first thing that we discover is what. Who God is, right? Okay, so, and then the second thing is we learn who we are. So what have we learned about God? Who is God? What are some of His attributes? Creator. Okay, here we go. Now we're going. Creator. What else? Holy. What else? Eternal. You guys are doing great so far. <laughs> All powerful. Thank you, Callie. Forgiver. Okay, that's right. It's a squeaky marker. Um, he's good. There we go. Lord of Lords. He has authority. Unchanging. Good. Okay. What have we learned about us? <laughs> we suck. Yes, we do. Um, pre- a lot of the... Okay, what else? What do you think? We're made in God's image. What else? Sinful. Does it say sinful? It's kind of the whole sucking thing. Sinful. Oh, Ian, great observation. Basically, everything that's opposite of what God is, right? So if you think about what has happened is that God created us in his image, okay? And he created us originally as holy. He created us eternal. He created us as uh, powerful over his creation. We had dominion. That's the big big theological word from creation is dominion, Um we were created to be good. We were created to be uh, to have authority over creation. We were we were created to be in His image. But whenever the fall of man happened, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, we were separated from Him. That means that, like in James, the first chapter, it says that God is the source of all things that are good. So that means that apart from Him, that there's nothing that's good. Nothing. In fact, Jeremiah tells us that, that the heart of man is desperately wicked and sick, and no one can know it. But the Lord, He reveals the hearts and the intents of the, of the mind. So, think about this. Is that because of what we have done, there is a separation between us and God. So, all of the things that we once were, now we are disconnected from those things. The fancy word is depravity for this over here. To be separated from God. Depravity means that we are completely um, incapable of good. Right? So this is the situation that we're trying to deal with today. We're going to talk about the doctrine of salvation. How do we be reconciled? How do we come back into relationship 
with a holy God who is eternal and all-powerful and, and the ultimate authority. So we're going to start with, our, our study has gone through several, several points this week. Um, the first is that salvation is a miraculous gift from God. Salvation is a miraculous gift from God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. God's given us salvation by grace through faith. In other words, when we put our trust in this God, who is holy, eternal, all-powerful, and forgiving, that He will provide salvation. It's a gift. It's not something that we can earn or that we can achieve. One of the, one of the, the challenges that, that we face as human beings is that we are innately insecure. The reason why we're insecure is because we're separated from truth. And God, being truth, He's the one who gives us confidence. And as we are walking through our, uh, the process of, of this revelation, that God's holy and we are separated from Him, we, need, we have this, this desire to want to prove ourselves. To say, okay, well, no, I'm, I'm not these things. In other words, we're like kind of in denial. So we try to prove ourselves to be righteous and holy. And so we think that we've got to do something in order to make this right. But Scripture tells us that He's the one that does this. It's a free gift that He gives us. The gift of salvation defies human expectations also. Because we think, well, if, if, the, if the scale is unbalanced, that means that we need to rebalance things, or maybe there's a way for me to figure this out. 1 Corinthians 1, 21-25 says this. It says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. In other words, what he's saying, what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians, he's saying, well, the Jews say that we have to have signs. We've got to have proof that God is going to save us. And the Greeks say, well, we need to have just wisdom. We need to have an understanding to understand how all of it works. And God says, no, I'm going to go ahead and just do this for you completely. You have no contribution to make. That's where we have to start, is that we've got to acknowledge that when it comes to salvation, we have nothing to contribute. Zero. We do not earn our salvation. In the same way, we do not earn our sanctification. There's also another trap that we fall into. We think, oh yeah, well, grace has been attributed to me, so therefore I'm saved, but I have to basically keep myself buttoned up, otherwise God's going to be mad at me, and I might lose it. But as we'll see here in a second, the things that God does, if He is all-powerful, there is nothing that I can do to upset the apple cart and to overturn what He's already done. So it is a miraculous gift. We can't earn it. And it's not, not something that we can produce ourselves. This begins with repentance. So repent and believe. I want you to consider it this way. A lot of times, so there are, there are two perceptions. Two perceptions to reality. This is, this is my opinion. That we have man's perspective, which is linear. Okay, say this is the beginning of time. In this timeline runs along here. We have Jesus and the cross. And then finally we have Revelation. Jesus coming back. Here we have creation. 
Now, we tend to think in human terms linearly. Okay? So our, our understanding is, is produced by our current awareness and everything that happened before that moment. Okay? So everything that you are aware of is just what you've experienced right now and then everything in your past. So, but for, from God's perspective, He doesn't think that way. God doesn't see just this point here where we are and everything back like we do. He sees everything comprehensively together. Okay? So that means that when Jesus died on the cross, Scripture tells us that, that we can't earn our salvation, right? That means that when Jesus died on the cross, God's perspective is that He didn't just die for these people who came to faith in Christ after His death and resurrection. He died for everyone that has ever and will ever live. It says in Romans that Abraham was counted as a friend of God because he believed. And the whole point of the book of Romans is that Paul is making the case to a bunch of Jewish Christians that you, you cannot earn your salvation. This has always been about faith. Even back from the beginning, he says in, I believe it's Romans chapter 4, 3 or 4, that Abraham became a, a child of God, number one, before he was circumcised, and number two, before the law was written. Because the, the, because the implication is that I can become saved if I do good stuff. That was the first heresy that they combated in the church, was that it has never been about works, ever. Even in the Old Testament days. The, the, another message of the book of Romans is that God gave us His Word to illustrate these two things. That He is perfect and holy, and we are imperfect and unholy. So He is faithful, and we are unfaithful. If you go through and you read the book of Hebrews, for instance, I've been in Hebrews for the last several months, is all about God's faithfulness. Every single bit of it. And all of the illustrations in Hebrews talk about all of this back here in the Old Testament. And it illustrates that mankind has been unfaithful from the beginning. So, how do we, if, if, this, if this is the reality of how things work, how does, create, how does salvation actually happen? So consider this. Repentance, this is defined by F.F. Uh, F. Bruce. He's, a, he's a, a writer and theologian. It says, Repentance involves a turning with contrition from sin to God. The repentant sinner is in the proper condition to accept the divine forgiveness. Repentance means an actual choice to submit to God's design. I'm going to turn away from my brokenness. Repentance means I'm going to turn away from living in sin and I'm going to surrender my, the control of my life to Jesus. Hebrews 11, 8 through 19 talks about Abraham. This is what we've been just been talking about. I'll read this to you. Beginning in verse 8 of Hebrews 11, it says, By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time, uh, proper time of life, since she regarded him faithful who had promised. Therefore, there were born even of one man and him as good as the dead, 
as good as dead at that, as many as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. All these died in faith, without receiving the promises, but having seen them, and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they have been remembering that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they aspire to a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he prepared a city for them. In other words, what he's saying here is that by faith, Abraham stepped out. God said, I want you to to leave your hometown, and I'm going to show you a place that I have for you. So Abraham is walking around the promised land, looking for this city that God's promised him. He doesn't find it. And then Isaac comes along, and he begins to search. He can't find it. Because what they're looking for is heaven. And what they stepped out in faith without realizing that this was going to happen, God manifested himself, and he said, I'm going to make this promise to you. And even in that, they believed without seeing. So the last three verses here, verse 17 of Hebrews 11 says this, By faith Abraham... When he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only son, to whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called. For he considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he also received him back. The idea here is that Abraham stepped out in faith, not knowing what was coming, trusting that God was going to fulfill his promises. And in the same way, we are exactly the same way. We also believe and we wait for what is coming. The purpose of what Scripture tells us is that God is consistent in keeping His promises. Right? And He's given us all of these moments along the way to essentially illustrate that He's faithful. So, in order for us to believe, we have to repent. We've got to turn away. Just like Abraham had to uh, decide if he was going to obey what God had called him to do, we have to do the same. We've got to turn away from the life that we have been We've been living in our rebellion and submit ourselves to him. Now, here's the thing, that we are justified by Jesus alone. Justified. Justified means to judge, to declare, to pronounce righteous and therefore acceptable. God's proven his righteousness through the testimony of Scripture and history. We're justified by Jesus alone here. So if we can't earn our salvation, if it's a free gift from God, we have to repent. We have to understand that that Jesus is the one who has secured our salvation. So can anybody tell me what is the difference between belief and faith? We use them interchangeably a lot in English. But what's the difference between the two? Have you ever considered this? Trust. Okay, thank you, Chad. So belief is an awareness It's a knowledge of something, okay? I believe that this stool will hold me if I sit on it. But have I put my faith in it yet? No. Not until I walk over and I put my weight on it have I put my faith in this stool. So, was this an action? Did I do something to make this sturdy? No. I believed that this would hold me And then I put my faith in it. In the same way, we believe that Jesus died died on the cross and was resurrected. But until we acknowledge through what we put our trust in, 
We have not put our faith in Jesus. We are just acknowledging the simple fact that He is God, or that He died on the cross, or that He was resurrected. We have to put our life purpose into the, into the trust of Jesus. Belief or faith, faith or active, activated belief leads to justice, uh, leads to justice. Grace comes to us through the sacrifice of cross of the cross. So I want you to consider this. So going back to our illustration here, there's a, there's a word, um, fancy word, called imputation. Imputation. Imputation or to impute something means to give something that, that uh, give something an identity by association. Okay? So at this point, when Jesus died on the cross, he imputed our sinfulness to him. So he took on our sinfulness so that we could be reconciled with God. So we would have the op- option. Um, 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21 says this, So then we are ambassadors for Christ as God, as God is pleasing through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteous of God himself, God in him. So in other words, what happened is God condescended, Jesus condescended, and he took on the attributes of man. He imputed all of the sinfulness of human beings onto himself. When we talked about the doctrine of the Son, we talked about how Jesus in his incarnation lived a completely human life. That means that Jesus, while he did not sin, he walked a life just like the rest of us did. So he not only lived perfectly with a fallen nature, but he also died for sins that he did not commit. And in doing that, he has, he has essentially bridged the gap for us. The challenge is that in order for us to impute the characteristics of God, we must repent. We must submit our lives to Him. Justification, this connection here, comes when we choose to submit to Christ's righteousness and allow it to be imputed to us. The choice we have to make is whether or not we will take His grace and righteousness. So, if Jesus died for all of creation, why, aren't, why doesn't everybody get saved automatically? Because we must choose to submit ourselves to a righteous life. Now, to those who decide not to do that, they do not receive grace or justification. So, when God issues judgment to a, an unbeliever, is God justified in that? Who made the choice to not receive salvation? Was it God? Or was it the person? It was the person, right? If I, if I for instance, if I say, hey, Johnny, this is a free gift, and I offer it to him. He didn't pay for it. I'm offering it for him to take it. If he chooses not to take it, who is that on? It's on Johnny. Well, you know, that's just not just. How dare you? How, how dare I condemn Johnny because he didn't take my gift? Well, he, he essentially made a choice that he doesn't want this. So if he doesn't want it, then he doesn't have it. 
So is God up there, big bad guy in the sky, telling, telling us that we're dirty, rotten scoundrels and he doesn't want anything to do with us? No, not at all. Because the doctrine of salvation teaches us that he is offering this free gift. He is begging us. He is showing us all of the ways that this is, a, this is really, really good. He's trying to sell us on this thing, a right relationship with him. And yet, if we decide to not take it, it's on us. In the book of Hebrews, it talks about the generation. That he calls it the rebellion. This is the generation of Jews who came out of Egypt. They saw God do all these incredible things. He led them with a column of a pillar of, of, of cloud by day and a column of fire by night. They saw the Red Sea open. They saw Pharaoh's army get drowned in the Red Sea. They saw all of these miracles, water coming out of a rock. And they walk up to the borders of the promised land, the land that has been promised to them. And God shows them that it's an abundant place, full of milk and honey. And you know what they say? Nah, I'm good. I'm good. And as a result, they choose to not take the gift. And God says, okay, I'm going to give you exactly what you want, a life without me. You're going to wander the desert for 40 years until every single one of you is dead. They chose their future. That generation is described in Hebrews as having unbelief. Unbelief is not just the absence of faith. It's not just, well, I didn't know. It's like getting that speeding ticket because you didn't see the, stop, the, the speed limit sign. It, this isn't talking about ignorance. This is a willful rejection of truth. So God has displayed what salvation looks like. He has offered the free gift. He has imputed sinfulness on himself and paid the price for our sin. What salvation looks like is us putting our faith in the free gift that God has, has offered us through, through Jesus Christ. We are justified through Jesus alone. But not only that, we are adopted Adoption is God's design. So uh, we've, we've been talking about this for some time now. We have God the Father. Who's next? The Son. And then we have the Holy Spirit. Right? And they are all connected. Three persons in one. And essentially, the Son is described as, obviously, the child of God. Now, we know that, that because of our study in the doctrine of the Son, that Jesus is equal with the Father. He's not his, he's not his progeny. He's not his descendant, right? So he's been made of the same substance. He's just a part of him. So, in essence, what happens is that God has offered for us to be here with the Son as adopted children. Romans 8, verse 12 says this, So then, brothers... We are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the practices of the body, you will live. For as many as are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have been received, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, that means Daddy in, in Hebrew. Verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God, and of children also heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed 
we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. He says that we are co-heirs with Christ. Now, what if, if Jesus is the heir, we've talked about this whenever we studied him in Philippians chapter 2, that, that, he is, that he is the supreme king of kings, what does that mean to be his co-heir? That means that, what, what is an heir? What, what, what are, what's entitled to an heir? Let's talk about that. An inheritance, okay. So stuff, you, get, you inherit stuff. Ah, position and a title too, a crucial piece. Okay, so do you remember when we talked about this right here? That God's creator, he's, he's, He gave authority and power to His creation, to human beings that are made in His image. He put them in the garden. He said, your job is to tend and to keep, to, to serve and to protect my creation. To have a title. To have stuff. Now this isn't acquiring stuff because of greed. This is genuine stewardship. This is ownership of responsibility. So after we are saved, what's promised here is that we will be heirs with Jesus. Jesus is a son of heaven. He is the first resurrected one, says this in Colossians. He is the heir of all creation. He's the maker of all things. He's the, he is the chief steward of, of everything. And Romans tells us that we're going to be co-heirs with him. Now, I don't know about you. That makes me feel pretty good about myself. Not because of anything that I've done, but because God has deemed it so. You see how ridiculous salvation is? How ludicrous the idea is that God would not only that He would save us, that He would rescue us from our sin, but then He doesn't just... We have this, mis, this misconception that to be a Christian, to be a child of God, means that, okay, God, I'm going to spend the rest of my life thanking you for how terrible of a human being I am and how awesome you are. That's the, that's the wrong view of who we are. The right view of who we are is to see ourselves as God sees us. You know, I was thinking about this uh, the other day. I was talking to a friend and we were talking about judgment, the judgment of God. And it says that everyone will give an account for their life, right? And uh, I'm still working on this concept, so if I'm wrong, I don't know. But everything that I've read in Scripture seems to point to this. Because Romans 8, 8.28 says that God works all the things together for our good. It says all this wonderful stuff. He goes on to, to talk about it. If you have your Bibles, turn over to, to Romans 8. If you're not already there. Now, I just read 12 through 17. But, but listen to this. Listen to what's waiting for us. Beginning in verse 18, it says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. That's you, by the way. That's you. Uh, verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to, to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Okay, pause right there at verse 23. It's saying that we're right here. This is where you are right now in history. 
So consider the generation that we live in. Um, we're a hot mess, right? We read the news. We see this on social media. It's like, oh my goodness, Lord, this, this just is not good. It does not feel good. But Paul is telling us in Romans that all of creation is groaning under the weight of sin. Like a woman in labor, feeling those first sets of contractions. He's saying, this is the, the, he says, we look forward to this moment when we're in heaven. This is how we get our hope. He says, because the glory that's going to be revealed in us is going to be ridiculous. Look at verse 24. For in hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we eagerly wait for it. And in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. In other words, what he's saying is that as we're right here dealing with all this mess right here, God sends his Holy Spirit to show us how he is working in the world and to give us hope for the future. Now here's something that will blow your mind. Is that us and Abraham have something in common. Abraham's around right here. Obviously this timeline is not scale. But Abraham had faith in something that he didn't know would, would come or not. Just for the hope of the future. And in the same way, we wait with hope for what we do not see. The promise of what will come in the future. But the one who made the promise is faithful. So as we consider that we are adopted into God's family, what that means is that the work that the, whole, the, the Father, the Holy Son, the, the Son, and the Holy Spirit had been doing since creation, this whole timeline, that He allows us to take part in it with Him. I was talking to a young adult this morning. And we were talking about the frustrations of sinfulness. That we, we grow tired of, of dealing with, with habitual sins. Sins that we always have to come back to God to confess and try to make ourselves right again. Trying to live up to this right here as we impute His godliness to us. And have you ever wondered, if we don't struggle with sin, guess what we don't have to do anymore? We don't have to come to God anymore. If we don't struggle against sin, there's no reason for us to pray. If we don't struggle against our flesh, we lose sight of who God is. If He just says, oh, yep, you're good, you're fine, it's all taken care of. Our salvation is secure, but our sanctification, this process of becoming like Him, it, it, goes, it, it happens over the course of our life so that we can still come to Him over and over again. And in doing that, we remember that it's not about the things that we do that matters. It's about who we are connected to. So we become co-heirs with Him. Salvation means that we have a choice to resist our sin. Salvation means that the Holy Spirit keeps our flesh from consuming us. Salvation means that our relationship with God has been restored and we are His adopted children. Salvation means that we share in the authority, the glory, and the work of Jesus if we give our lives to Him. Now I want to note something quickly. To give my life to Jesus is not a one-time event. There's a word that, that Jesus uses when He talks about greater love is no one than this than the one who gives his life for his friends. Now, 
if we think that there's a, there's a number of ways that we can read that because there are different words for life in Greek that uh, that mean different things. You have zoe, which which is where we get our uh, we get our word like life itself. We have uh, but the use that Jesus uses is psyche, which is our life purpose, our mind, our person. To give your life to Jesus means that I give everything to Him. All of it. All of the decisions that I make, the purpose, the jobs that I take, the, how we raise our kids, how we communicate with each other, how I value my marriage. Everything about us revolves around this one decision. Giving our life to Jesus is not a one-time event. It's a commitment to a specific way of life that God has commanded. It's a continuous decision to submit to the righteousness of Christ. So here's our last thing, is that salvation also means that we are supposed to become more like Jesus, and that it's a process. Philippians 1.6 says this, it says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He's going to finish it. He's going to finish what he started, in other words. That when we become saved, when we turn our lives over to Jesus and we submit to this design, what happens is the salvation experience itself is just the beginning that God is going to continue to do. Again, we're putting faith in something that we don't see yet. You may be thinking about your current situation, thinking, well, you know what? I'm so frustrated that I can't make any progress in my thought life or in my sin. I'm, I don't, I'm anxious. I'm addicted to pornography. I am, I am struggling with this sin and this sin and this sin. You think there's no hope for me. But you have to, again, remember that God's Word tells us who He is and who we are. And what this says about God is that He will finish what He started. So even though you might be exasperated, even though you might be frustrated with your, with your, your perceived lack of progress, God is faithful and He will finish His work in you. I'll tell you right now that you are right on time. You're right on schedule in your sanctification. You're not behind. You shouldn't be farther ahead than you are right now. You are right on time. He is faithful and He will complete the work that He has started in you. The last thing here is that God trains us to be like Him. Hebrews 12, 3-12 says this, For consider Him who has endured such hostility by sinners against Himself, so that you will not grow weary, faint, fainting in heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding, shedding blood in your own striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the, the discipline of the Lord nor faint when you are approved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He flogs every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with His sons. For what son is there whom His Father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and, re and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best for to them, but He disciplines us for our benefit, so that we may share his, in His holiness. And all discipline for the moment seems not, not to be joyful but sorrowful, but to those who have been trained by it, afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. These last two verses are really, really important. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. In other words, the process of God training us to be like Him, this sanctification process, is a good thing because it brings us back to Him continually. Why does the doctrine of salvation matter? Three things. That it teaches us 
who we were, that we were sinful, that we are going to be trapped by our flesh until the moment that either Jesus returns or we meet our, 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 our death. It teaches us who we were. It also teaches us who we are, that we're saved, that we've been reconciled with God, that we are who He says we are, not who we say we are, and not through our unmet expectations that have been created in our own sinful ignorance. And lastly, who we are becoming. Salvation teaches us that, there's, that change is not just possible, it will happen because God takes salvation seriously. So no matter where you are right now today, I want to offer you this advice. If you have not fully committed your life to Jesus, I'm not talking about walking down an aisle, I'm not talking about giving a speech or, or getting wet in a bathtub. If you have not fully convinced it yourself and given all of your life purpose away to Jesus, you need to do that today. You're in a healthy church environment. You've got, you got a, a lot of people around you that want to see you succeed and have a relationship with God. Fix that today. If you don't know what that looks like or if you're intimidated to have the conversation because supposedly we're all Christians here, Come and talk to me and let's get coffee because I care more about you having a relationship with Jesus than I do about your feelings. It's so much more important. Who carries the power if you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Married Now What podcast is a ministry of Evergreen Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and is meant to be a resource for in-depth Bible study for couples striving to build their lives on the truth of God's Word. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org.